For those of you who are, are new to Lighthouse, or just to remind you, we are in the midst of a series called His Story, in which we are exploring the grand narrative that runs all throughout Scripture. And as we've been talking about, the Bible is made up of a lot of smaller stories with different individuals that we're introduced to as we go through it. But as we step back from that and begin to look at Scripture as a whole, from Genesis to Revelation, there is one grand narrative that runs throughout. God is the central character. It is his story. And it's a story about a father in pursuit of his prodigal children. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've been journeying through Genesis, and we saw God speak the world into existence. And then he created man in his image to be his representatives, tasked with caring for his good creation. And yet, God, in his efforts to have personal relationship with us, gave us the ability to choose not to have relationship, because you can't choose to, be, to, to love someone if you cannot help but love them. And so rather than just creating machines that would do his bidding, he created mankind with the ability to choose whether or not to obey. And inevitably, Adam and Eve began to question God's goodness when the serpent came in and said, he's holding out on you. He hasn't, he's created you deficient. You don't, you're not like him and you could be if you just eat this fruit. And so Adam and Eve ate the fruit and sin and shame came breaking into God's good creation and messing it all up. And then as we saw last week, it was a downward spiral where it's almost as if mankind's moral compass was broken and they began to make choices as autonomous individuals as opposed to people in relationship with God. And so God said, okay, you know what? If you're not willing to be my representatives, then I will create a people who will be. And he chose one guy, a guy named Abraham. And he said, from you, I'm going to make a great nation, a, a nation of priests set apart for me who will be my representatives to the rest of the world. And at the time, Abraham was 75 and his wife was 70. And it was full 25 years before God finally blessed them with that child of the promise, the child through whom they would have this great nation expand. Um, and yet God did that. God was uh, faithful to them in providing that child. But there's one interesting thing that God said to Abraham, and, and we're going to be all over the Bible. I just want you to understand, in the first couple of weeks, we looked at Genesis 1 and 2 the first week. Then we looked at Genesis 3 the second week. Last week we covered about... 12 chapters of scripture, and today we're going to cover about 50, so we're going to be flying. <laughs> All right, we're biting off a lot, but I have a feeling we're going to be able to get to it. I'm going to have to just, I'm just trying to connect dots at this point. We're going to connect some dots so you can begin to see the pace of Scripture and the way that this thread runs all the way from Genesis into Exodus and so forth. But in Genesis chapter 15, and it's probably going to be helpful if you have a Bible with you, rather than using your phone because it's more difficult to skip around, grab one that's an analog version. There's a bunch of them in the seats in front of you. Um, use that because it's going to be easier to flip pages. We're just going to go from chapter to chapter, looking at a couple of verses here and there and moving on. Again, we're just trying to capture the thread and follow it through Scripture. In Genesis chapter 15, God covenants with Abraham. And he says a couple of things. Abraham, first off, I'm going to give you a child. Okay, this is when he's 75 years old. I'm going to give you a child. And now he didn't know it was going to take 25 years, but he promises him a child at that point. He also promises that his people, the nation that's going to come from this child of the promise, will inherit the land in which they reside at that point. It was the land of Canaan, but we've come to know it as the promised land. But even in the midst of this discussion, God gives Abraham a warning in verse 13 of Genesis chapter 15. He said, Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years... Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with, a, with great possessions. Now God is warning him before he even has his first child that generations later his, this nation that would come from Abraham's seed would actually be enslaved in another nation. And he's foretelling of what is to come. But in order to get there, I just want to let you know kind of where things go. So 25 years after that day, God finally brings the child of the promise, a kid named Isaac. Abraham and his wife Sarah give birth to Isaac. 
And Isaac, when he is older, gives birth to a son named Jacob. And Jacob, and with each of these generations, God continues to establish a promise with them. The same covenant he made with Abraham is given to Isaac. And the same covenant that's given to Abraham and Isaac is given to Jacob. And it's interesting, we're not going to look at the story, but at one point, Jacob is having a dream in which God comes to him. The angel of the Lord begins to wrestle with him. And Jacob will not release the angel of the Lord until he promises to bless him. And so that night, God changes Jacob's name to Israel, meaning one who wrestles with the Lord. And Israel, or Jacob, goes on to have 12 sons of his own, from which we get the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, And this is going to be the beginning, the really the, the huge branching out of the nation of Israel through these 12 sons. But even though they're God's representatives, even though they're going to be God's people representing his heart to the rest of the world, as with any family, particularly a family with 12 boys, there's going to be some dysfunction. And there's certainly dysfunction in this family because one of Israel's youngest sons, a kid named Joseph, begins to have some dreams, dreams of grandeur, dreams of his brothers bowing down to him. Now remember, he's not the oldest son, he's one of the youngest sons. And then he has the youthful audacity to actually tell his brothers, hey, I had a dream in which you guys were bowing down to me. It doesn't go over so well. Particularly because the boys already feel like he is the favorite son of their father. And so in their anger, in their wrath, they decide we're going to punish him. And at first they're thinking, let's just kill him straight up. Let's get rid of him. Then we don't have to deal with him at all. But then wiser minds and perhaps the the desire to make a penny comes in mind. And so they decide to sell him into slavery instead. And then they come back to their dad and go, we don't know what happened to our brother. He may have been eaten by animals or something, but he's gone. And Joseph is sent into slavery in Egypt. But even there, God has, has his hand of protection. And I know I'm going quickly, but I'm just trying to paint the picture. God has his hand of protection on Joseph, even in Egypt. And God begins to bless the work of his hands. And he even gives him the ability to to interpret dreams. And so years later, as he's sitting enslaved in Egypt, and the Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler of the most powerful nation in all of the world at that time, has a dream, and none of his wise men can interpret it. And then somebody comes and says, hey, there's this Israelite who has the ability to interpret dreams. And Pharaoh says, get him in here. And Joseph gets led into the most powerful man's throne room. And Pharaoh says, okay, I had a dream in which I saw seven healthy cows emerging from the Nile River. And then right after that came seven unhealthy, gaunt cows. And those unhealthy cows ate up the healthy cows. So what do you think? And God gives Joseph the ability to interpret the dream. And he says, Pharaoh, those seven healthy cows are seven years of plenty. There are going to be seven wonderful years of plenty in our nation, but they're going to be followed by seven years of of famine. And so if I were you, I would suggest that you gather a fifth of all of the produce of your nation over the next seven years so that when those years of famine hit, your nation won't only not be destroyed, it will actually prosper as all of the other nations around you come to you to buy grain from you. And Pharaoh kind of sits back and goes, This kid's got some wisdom. Okay, Joseph, I think that's a great idea. In fact, you're in charge of implementing it. So from this point forward, you're no longer a slave. You are no longer a prisoner. You are now the second in command of this great nation. Only I will be above you. And in a heartbeat, he goes from prisoner to a leader, to a ruler. And the years pass. And the years of plenty turn into years of famine. And the nations begin to come to the Pharaoh and come to Joseph to buy the grain that they've stored up. And eventually, Joseph's brothers, the ones that sold him into slavery, come slinking into Egypt. Now, they have no idea who Joseph is, but they come slinking into Egypt and they find themselves kneeling before their brother, saying, we need to buy grain. And when Joseph sees them and he finally reveals himself to them. I mean, imagine being a brother who has sold your little brother into slavery, thinking for sure he's gone. And now all of a sudden, you're standing before him and realizing he has the power of life and death in his hands. He, in a, in a word, can have us killed. And yet, it, this is Genesis chapter 50, the very last chapter of Genesis, if you want to turn there. I just love the words that Joseph says to his brothers as they are in terror that their little brother 
is going to exact retribution on them. And in Genesis 50, verse 19, we see Joseph's response to his brothers. He says, don't be afraid. This is Genesis chapter 50, verse 19. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You, my brothers, intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the savings of many lives. In other words, you meant it for evil. You meant to hurt me, but God has used this. God, in fact, intended this so that I could be in this exact spot that I am right now, saving his people and saving you. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them, and then his brothers and his entire family all of the people of Israel move into the land of Egypt. And Joseph, being the second in command, Pharaoh goes, oh, welcome your family. Absolutely, they're welcome here. Let's, okay, so they're, they're shepherds. They, they tend sheep. Okay, well then let's put them in the very best grazing lands of all of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. That will be the land for the Israelites. And in that place, the Israelites not only are able to survive the famine, but they begin to thrive and flourish and their numbers begin to multiply. And so as we pick up in Exodus chapter 1, that is the premise. That's what's happened. They have, they have come into Egypt in order to escape the famine. And it was salvation. But salvation quickly turns to enslavement as the generations pass. And they continue to build wealth and build influence and build numbers. And the new Pharaoh begins to look at that and realize this is getting out of hand. And so we read in Exodus chapter 1, verse 6. Now Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increasing in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And then a new king, a new pharaoh, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. We must deal shrewdly with them, or they'll become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave this country. And so they put slave masters over them to oppress them into forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. And they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all of the harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. And the king, the pharaoh of Egypt, said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Sifra and Poah, and if you ever name your daughter Poah, you're doing her a disservice. <laughs> he said to these midwives, when you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth in the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill it. But if it's a girl, let it live. In other words, I do not want this nation to continue to grow in strength. I do not want them to become militarized. So we've got to take all of the fighters out. So if you see it's a boy, kill it. Now, thankfully, these women feared God and they were not willing to follow through with that. But that is the predicament that we see the people of Israel in some 400 years after they have come into Egypt in order to escape famine. They are in bondage. They are being persecuted. And they're crying out to God, going, God, save us. Well, time passes and that Pharaoh dies. And we read now in the end of Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, died. And the Israelites groaned in their slavery, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And so God does what he does so often throughout Scripture. He responds, and he responds by choosing a person, a representative, out of the people to be his prophet. And by the, by the term prophet, I don't mean necessarily somebody who just tells the future, although that is one thing that prophets do. A prophet is simply somebody who speaks the words of God. It's God's voice piece. And God chooses a guy from out of the number of Israelites, a guy named Moses, who used to be living in Egypt, in fact, he was supposed to be killed, and so his mom threw him in a reed basket and put him on the river to try to protect him from being killed by the midwives. 
And then Moses was picked up by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in the palace of the Pharaoh. But then, when he saw one of the the Egyptian slave masters beating an Israelite, he took matters into his own hands and he killed that slave master. And when word got out that this had happened, he realized the moment that the Pharaoh hears what I've done, my life is done. And so he escaped into the wilderness. And for decades, he's been living in the wilderness, hiding out. And then one day as he's walking, tending the sheep, he sees a bush that's burning in the distance and he goes, what's going on over there? You know, you don't see that every day. So he walks over to see the bush and God meets him in that moment. And we have this intimate dialogue between God and Moses, the one he's choosing to be his representative. We don't have time to look at all of it. But let's pick it up in verse 11. Because God tells Moses, and this is in chapter 3, verse 11. God says to Moses, Moses, I want you to be my representative. I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to tell him to let my people go. And Moses said to God, who am I that should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Seriously, you got the wrong guy. It's not me. And God said, I'll be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And I love the sign that God gives Moses, because it's not like in the moment. Here, let me show you right now. Look, boom, there goes that mountain. I just knocked it over. No, he's like, once you've done what I tell you to do, you're going to come back here. That's going to be the sign that I'm actually who I am. (laughs) So Moses has to follow through before. Yeah, you get it. Okay. I just find that very funny. And then Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, well, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And he's, and they ask me, well, what's his name? Who sent you? Because here's the thing, names were tremendously important in the Hebrew culture. A name was more than just an arbitrary thing that your parents gave you. A name represented something about you. So, for instance, when God changed Abraham's name from Abram to Abraham, Abraham means father of many. And God was saying, you will be the father of of a multitude, a nation. And when God changed Jacob's name to Israel, Israel means one who wrestles with God. So the name meant something. And here Moses is saying, well, what's your name? Who should I tell them has sent me? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God, (laughs) it's kind of a frustrating name because quite honestly, it's like, well, what does that mean? I am that I am. So I am has sent you and I am has been transliterated into Yahweh, which is then, you know, we have defined it as the Lord. Anytime you see the Lord in all capital letters, that is the name Yahweh, I am. And it's throughout scripture all over the place, particularly in the Old Testament. What does that mean? Well, God is reminding Moses, listen, there's no way you can define me. How can you put a box around me and say, well, this is the characteristic of God? In the New Testament, we get that God is love. But he's simply saying, there's no way to wrap your arms around who I am. I simply am that I am. You can't define me by any created thing because I transcend all of the the tags, the labels that you want to put on me. I'm just God. So tell them that I am has sent you. I'm going to skip down to verse 16 because he says, I want you to go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them that the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and I've seen what's been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of the misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The, the elders of Israel will listen to you Then you and the elders are are to go to the Pharaoh of Egypt and say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to Yahweh our God. But I know, this is God speaking, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform amongst them. And after that, he will let you go. And... I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards his people so that when you leave, you're not going to go empty handed. Every woman is to go to her neighbor and any woman living in her house and ask for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will then put on your sons and daughters. And so in that way, 
you will plunder the Egyptians. So Moses, after a lot uh, of encouragement, a lot of cajoling, Moses finally goes, all right, fine, I'll go. And, God, and he goes, but God, listen, I'm not articulate. I don't know how to speak. And I'm going you know, to mumble the words out. I'm just not, not going to compel him. And he goes, fine, seriously, if this is the impediment for you, fine. Your brother Aaron can go with you, okay? I'm going to give you the words to say, and you tell them to Aaron, and he can be your prophet. He can speak the words that you tell him to say. But you're my guy, Moses. You are my leader. You're not getting out of this. So he sends Moses to Pharaoh, and Moses kind of shakily comes into Pharaoh's presence, along with his brother Aaron, and they say, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Hebrews, tells you to let their people go. And Pharaoh laughs and goes, who am I to fear your God, your puny, pathetic God? And he not only says no, he decides, you know, if they have the audacity to ask for some time off, they obviously have too much time. So he makes their work a whole lot more difficult. And isn't that the case that so often happens when, when things are bad? It's kind of like we want to see it get better. It, it tends to get worse before it gets better. And in this instance, Pharaoh just absolutely hammers the Israelite people. He says, now not only do you have to make bricks, and I'm not going to change your quota, but now you have to go gather your own straw. I'm not even going to provide it for you. But if your quota drops, you're going to get punished. And so the people, the Israelites who've been crying out for help, come to Moses and go, what are you doing? Stop it. You're not, you're not helping the matters. Just shut up. And so in, in chapter 5, right at the very end, in verse 22, we see Moses coming, slinking back to God going, I thought this was going to turn out. I, I told you I'm not your guy, and obviously I'm not your guy. Moses returned to the Lord. This is verse 22 of chapter 5. Moses returned to Yahweh and said, Why, my Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is that why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Can you just hear the, the, the frustration and the anguish? Like, this is not working out the way we thought, but I, I kind of suspected that he was, what the heck? Chapter 6, verse 1. Then Yahweh said to Moses, now, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am Yahweh, the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as as God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, I am, I did not make myself fully known to them. You're the first person that I've made myself fully known to. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, I want you to go to the Israelites who are just at their wits end and are overwhelmed and are feeling like they've been completely abandoned. I want you to go to the Israelites And tell them, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you up out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. And so Moses finally, again, after lots and lots of cajoling from God, goes with his brother Aaron back into Pharaoh's presence. And as we read the very uh, chapter 7, verse 2, God gives instructions to Moses. He said, this is what you are to say. You are to say everything I command you. Chapter 7, verse 2. And your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But, and I want you to pay attention to this line because this is something that God says multiple times through this whole process. But, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring my divisions, my people, the Israelites, out. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Now, what on earth are we reading here? God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart, but 
doesn't he want his people out of slavery? So why would he actually harden Pharaoh's heart so that he would be resistant to Moses asking, couldn't he just change Pharaoh's heart to say, fine, go? He could, but God has a different plan here. And in order, before I answer the question of why he hardens Pharaoh's heart, let me tell you a little bit about Egypt. Egypt is not only the most powerful nation in the world at this time, but Egypt is a, a radically polytheistic culture, meaning they had gods for everything. They had gods they believed that influenced birth and death. They had gods that could influence the seasons. They had gods that, that, that influenced the the life-giving Nile River, it was infused with a God that controlled that, the lifeblood of all of, of Egypt. They had gods that controlled the sun, the moon, and the stars. Even Pharaoh himself was considered a god. He was the god king, a descendant of the most powerful god of all, Ra, who controlled the sun. And it makes sense, wouldn't it? You know, you live in a desert. The sun is probably the most powerful thing you see, so therefore Ra must be god of all. And Pharaoh is his son. And the Israelites, the people of God, have lived in this culture for 400 plus years. They have, the generation, Moses' generation, has known nothing but slavery. And they have watched the Egyptians become more and more powerful. And it would be natural for them to attribute Egypt's influence and affluence to the gods that they served. Right? The gods have obviously blessed the Egyptians. And so God is not interested in simply taking his people out of slavery. He wants to take the slavery out of his people. He wants to show them powerfully, I, Yahweh, am far more powerful than any of these so-called gods of the Egyptians. Not only am I going to show you that I'm more powerful, I'm going to show them. Kind of using the words of William Wallace, I'm going to go pick a fight. And he does. He goes and picks a fight with Pharaoh. He uses Pharaoh as a pawn to show his people and the rest of the world that I, God, am the most powerful deity. I am the only God. And so he levels a number of plagues on Egypt. We're not going to look at all of them. But the first one, he turns the Nile River, which is the lifeblood of Egypt. If you live in the desert, the vast majority of people lived right along the banks of the Nile River. Because you need water to survive. And he turns the Nile River, which they believed there was a God that controlled it, he turns the Nile River into blood, basically killing the God in their minds, turning it to blood so that the life-giving water actually becomes death-bringing blood that chokes out life along the banks. The people had to literally go and dig holes way away from the water in order to find water to drink during that time. The second of the plagues... Frogs. The frogs begin to course out of uh, the river. They begin to come out of the swamps. They become to in, begin to infest the houses and the streets and the palaces of Egypt. You go, frogs, what's the big deal? Except that in, Egypt, in Egyptian mythology, they believe that the frog was the symbol of Hecate, the, the goddess of life, the goddess of birth. And according to them and their customs, you could not harm a frog. If you killed a frog... It was punishable by death. And now all of a sudden you have these frogs that are infesting your homes and infesting your streets and the temples. And they can't touch them. And so finally Pharaoh goes, okay, seriously, Moses, please, intercede, talk to your God, get these frogs out of here. And Moses goes, okay. And he prays to God and all the frogs drop dead where they're they're hopping. They begin to pile these frogs up. And then follows a plague of gnats or fleas. And then a plague of flies. And then we have the cattle. Again, there was a God that was attributed to the cattle. It was a representative of them. And the cattle began to die. And then the people themselves begin to get boils all over them to the point where even the wise men can't even come before Pharaoh because it's too painful to walk. And then we have hail, which has always been seen as kind of the wrath of God. The hail begins to just take out large swaths of their land and all of the the grain that they've been growing, and it destroys it. And then what the hail doesn't destroy, the locusts, and tons and tons of locusts descend and eat up everything else. And in all of these, even if there's not a specific God that's being targeted, in all of these, Yahweh's basically saying, okay, bring it, gods of Egypt. If you're powerful enough, save your people. And he can't. 
they can't. And then we get to the ninth plague. Remember, who is the most powerful god in the Egyptian pantheon? Ra, the god of the sun. And God, Yahweh, blots out the sun over all of Egypt. It becomes black. Except for one area. The land of Goshen. The land where the Israelites reside. God says, I'm more powerful even than your most powerful God. I can shackle him anytime I choose. But even then, God's not finished. Because he's got one last plague he's going to bring against the most visible of all of Egypt's gods, the Pharaoh, the God King. And so he says to his Israelites, listen, shortly I'm going to send the angel of the Lord through the land, and he's going to kill the firstborn son, the firstborn male, both man and of cattle and all of those other livestock. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to preserve you. I want you to go out into your flocks and I want you to choose a lamb no older than a year without a single blemish on it. It has to be pure, spotless. I want you to choose this lamb and I want you to bring it into your home and for a couple of weeks you're going to live with this lamb. Your children are going to get close to this lamb. And then on the day that I tell you, you're going to slaughter this lamb. You're going to gather it's blood, and you're going to take that blood and you're going to wipe it on the doorframe and the lintel of your home. You're going to mark your home with the blood of this lamb. And on the night when the angel of the Lord passes through, he is going to take the firstborn son from every home that he comes to. But in any house that he finds the blood of the lamb, he'll pass over it, from which we get the Passover. And sure enough, this happens. And even Pharaoh's firstborn son is killed. The God King, the most powerful man in all of Egypt, the descendant of Ra, supposedly, could not preserve his son and his heir. And finally, Pharaoh relents and says, fine, get your people out of here. Take them, go. And so the Israelites do. They, they gather up their children. They gather up their flocks. They gather up their possessions. They take their bread and they bake it even though it doesn't have yeast in it because it hasn't had time to rise. So they take this unleavened bread with them and they eat that along the way. And then the women, remember, because God said in, in, you know, earlier, have your women go next door and ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold and clothing. So they do. They go next door. And the, the Egyptians are so terrified at this point of Yahweh, the God of Israel, that they give them stuff. They're like, here, just go. Take it. Go. And the Israelites walk out of slavery with their heads held high, having just pilfered their former slave owners. Having just stripped the land, they walk out of slavery led by God himself in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, and he leads them toward the promised land. But God's not finished yet. Because soon after this, Pharaoh kind of shakes off his sadness at the loss of his son. And he begins to realize what he's just done. I have just released our slave labor. Just let him go. What have I done? And so he rounds up his army, the most powerful army of all of the nations in that time. And he runs after the Israelites, looking to either bring them back into slavery or just take them out altogether. Go with me to, to Exodus chapter 14. So Pharaoh and his armies pursue the Israelites into the wilderness. And God tells the Israelites, I want you to camp right here at the edge of the Red Sea. Basically hemmed in. They can't go any further. They can't escape. They're stuck up against the side of this body of water. And suddenly they look up and they see the Egyptian army descending upon them. Now, as they were walking out, no doubt they were excited. Yahweh has fought for us. He has done great things. But the moment that a new obstacle is before them. The moment that they see this army descending upon them, they panic and they forget all of the ways that God's been faithful and all the ways that Yahweh has shown his power before and they panic. We read in verse 10 of chapter 14, as Pharaoh approached the Israelites, they looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them and they were terrified, understandably, and they cried out to God. And they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? 
What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the desert. Isn't that just like human tendency? The moment that a new problem arises, we forget about all of the other things we've seen and we just hyperfixate on the problem before us. And they are hyperfixated on this. And listen to Moses' words in verse 13. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see before you, you'll never see again. Yahweh will fight for you. You need only be still. And so the cloud and the fire that has been leading them and guiding them, Yahweh comes and sits between the Egyptian army and the Israelites, protecting them, creating a wall between the two of them. And then Moses goes and he takes his staff, and we've all seen this, if you've seen the Prince of Egypt or just about any other, you know, Charlton Heston, puts his staff over the water, the waters get pushed back, dry land. And now I know that some people have suggested, well, you know, the part of the Red Sea that they crossed over was just inches deep, so it really wasn't that big a deal. To which I say, amen to that, because then once the Israelites go through, the Egyptian army goes through, and they drown in inches of water, which is amazing, right? It's like, okay, fine, however you want to do it, it's still amazing that the Israelites pass through, and then the Egyptian army, as they pursue them, the, the walls of water, whether they're inches or miles high, come crashing down around them and decimate the most powerful army in the world at that time, not a single survivor of this army. And God not only fights for the Israelites, he destroys this army before them. And they're standing on the other side of the sea. We read this in verse 29 of Exodus chapter 14. The Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And that day Yahweh saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord. And they put their trust in him and in Moses, Yahweh's servant. Now this term fear is one that we're going to come into, you know, you, you come into contact with a lot throughout Scripture. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And as I've, I've mentioned before, fear, there's two types of fear. There's abject terror, the kind of thing like when my wife sees a spider and she just shuts down and thinks she's going to die and I get called at the office like you need to come here and kill the spider or I will die. Um, the fear is sometimes when there's a police officer that, you know, is driving behind you and you're just like, ah, what did I do wrong? I'm like five miles under the speed limit and I'm still terrified that I'm going to get pulled over. There's that abject fear that shuts us down or there's healthy fear, a fear that motivates us, a fear that it is a reverential respect for that thing or that person because they have a, uh, they have a power and an ability about them. And that is the type of fear we're talking about. The kind of fear that you say, I respect you, I revere you, and therefore I will order my life around you. I'm not going to try to get you to do my bidding. I'm submitting my life to you. The kind of fear that if I were to see a tornado coming towards me, you better believe I'm not going to keep driving out and going, it'll move. I'm going to get out of the way. I'm going to order my steps around it because there's no way that I'm going to dictate what it does. And that's the kind of reverential respect that the people begin to have for Yahweh. They have seen his power. They have experienced his might. They recognize that they don't control him. He is Lord. And so, right after, in chapter 15, we see the Israelites worshiping God as the, the bodies of the Egyptian army continue to lap up on the shore. And then they go from the Red Sea and they begin to be led by God towards the promised land that he promised to give them. And you would think at this point, things are good. No more questions. They have learned to trust their leader, right? Learned to trust their Lord. Except that the moment that they, their tummies begin to grumble, the moment that they begin to feel the first hunger pangs, they forget what God has done, and they begin to focus on their needs again. So we read in chapter 16, last couple of verses we're going to look at this morning. Chapter 16. Verse 2, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, oh, if we'd only died by Yahweh's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you've brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Are you kidding me? 
Is your memory that short-sighted? Yeah. Because when our troubles are behind us, when God does something for us, our tendency is to go, amen, yay God. And when things are placid and it's easy, we can proclaim our trust in God all day long. But the moment that a new trouble, something new arises that we don't know the answer to, we cannot figure out, we can't solve by our own strength, our own wisdom, our own human ingenuity, suddenly we begin to despair again. And sadly, I'll say that I'm a lot like the Israelites. I'd like to say, I'd like to shake my head at them and just go, you know, what are you guys thinking? But I'm just like them. It is so easy to forget that the God whom I serve is bigger than any of the problems I will ever encounter. And I imagine there are some of us in here this morning who are facing some pretty stinking huge obstacles. And they seem overwhelming. They seem daunting. Maybe there are some of us in here who just go, my life's good right now. But even that security is only a phone call or a doctor's visit away from being in this place of the Israelites going, I don't see the answer, and I'm overwhelmed. And I could, you know, it's important to remember God's faithfulness in those dark times. When we're walking through the valleys of the shadow of death, when we're facing our own mortality, when we're facing the brokenness of our relationships, or the feelings that we have somehow put our ladder against the wrong wall and we've been climbing it, trying to reach the top and we've gotten to the top and we've realized that we've been climbing up the wrong wall. We've wasted opportunities with our family. We've wasted years of our lives. We've wasted energy on things that can't give life. And it's easy to despair. And yet, the thing that I hear screaming out from Scripture is remember God's faithfulness. Remember the ways that he has been faithful. And I can tell you that, but I'd rather show you that. So what I want to do this morning is I want to invite Jim to come forward. And and some of you may not know Jim. He's been staying at the Winnikeys for the last couple of months. Um, Jim and his wife live in Hawaii. Lived there for about 30 years. And around Thanksgiving, Christmas, he and his wife came out to visit family and came out to visit the Winnikeys and some other friends because they used to live out here. And while they were out here, uh, Jim had a, a heart attack, a pretty big one. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a good one. And, uh, anyways, um, woke up the next morning after... Oh, sorry. Is that not turned on? Is it working now? Not yet. Yeah, let me, let me play with it. I haven't got a clue. Oh, it's, there it is. See, look at that. Little. It's so little. There you go. How's that? Is that better? That's better. Okay, thanks. All right. Um... Yeah, after my heart attack, uh, doctors told me everything would be fine, and I trusted them. And my wife and I joked about when I went in, and she goes, I don't care what it costs, I want you to come home. And I go, I'll be back. Next morning I woke up, not with a fear, but with just with a peace. I'm here. Thank you, God. And I didn't, I didn't worry about what was going to surround me. I just was like, from this day forward, I promise, I'm not driving anymore. I'm not, not literally, I'm just going to sit in the back seat and let... Let you take care of anything in my life from this day forward. And uh, not to be lazy, but just to trust God more. And uh, it was about 10 minutes later, my wife came in circling around me just with all kinds of questions. How are we going to do this? You can't work for several months. We'll lose our home. You know, we we can't even get home. You know, what are you going to do? And uh, it was right then I just said, Wendy, I, I... I know it's going to be okay. I don't think anything is uh, <clears throat> definitely wrong here, and, and uh, they can't they can't take everything from us. But we nothing is ours anymore, so it's all God's. Let's just wait and see. You didn't have insurance at this time, did you? No, no. We we had signed up for insurance in Hawaii, and we were planning to go home the seventh, sign the papers, and start getting. But uh, California, they won't. Uh, there's a little clause. I'm from Hawaii, so my Every, I'm good there, but not good here. So I was faced with uh, kind of a large bill. And uh, again, that didn't worry me. I just, we just laughed and joked about it. We'll just make payments and move on in life. You How know? big was that bill? About, about 175000 uh, for uh, for just a few days in the hospital. 
And uh, I just kind of laughed because I, I was trusting God. I go, well, we're, we're going to make it. We're still going to make it. It's going to be okay. And uh, she goes, well, I have another. After she, she, she had flown home because she was going to go ahead of me, and I still had another doctor visit, and then I was able to go. And uh, she called me up, and she goes, but I have something else for you. She says, the hospital's wiped away about 147,000 of it. And uh, Just forgave it? Just forgave it. And we didn't sign up for anything. And they told us, though, there was no possibility because we weren't residents of California either. Mm-hmm. So it would just be like we have to pay. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... Uh, so they had a change of heart. Yeah, they had a... I think, I think God's in the whole thing. You know, I don't think... I don't see any, <laughs> any other reason... And uh, my wife works for, for uh, she cleans houses for a living. A lot of people that have separate uh, second and third homes that they come to Hawaii for, and she manages those and takes care of them. And one guy in particular has is, is always been a neat Christian, but not so neat in our lives. And, uh, and uh, she went to him and worked, and uh, she was, she, they knew our circumstances, what was going on, and... Uh, he uh, told Lindy, he says, well, what do I owe you for the day? And she told him, and uh, it was probably one of the last times that we were going to see him because uh, she, she found out I couldn't fly home. And uh, we decided to uh, just relocate here then and there. And uh, he says, well, Wendy, here's your pay for the day. And he says, this is from Jesus. And uh, he wiped out about another of a remaining bill, took us down below 50% of what we now owe of the 20 and uh, God's faithfulness and grace has just been continuous in our life, just not with the money. That, that, this is all wonderful, but it's just every day it just works. He works at just, just knowing that, uh, that he loves me is just enough, yeah. just enough. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's huge. And this is one of those things where, you know, I, I, we talk about I want to see God show up. And yet so often I, I think... I want to see, thank you so much for sharing. I, I want to see God show up, and yet I don't want to be so dependent upon it that I need him to show up, right? I want God to glorify himself, but I really want to have the ability to get out of it in case he doesn't. And in this case, with Jim and Wendy, Jim and Wendy they got to the point where they did, not, they did not have the ability to be in control at this point. It's in God's hands. And I love the way that he gave you such... such um, peace in that. And God wiped away debt that they could not possibly take care of themselves. And maybe they would have figured it out, but God did it in a way that brought glory to himself. And then here's the point. The, the questions aren't all answered for them yet. They still, I mean, at this point, they're relocating here. They're trying to pick up the pieces. You've got to figure out how you're going to you know, make ends meet. You don't know where you're going to live. And a lot, a lot like the Israelites in the wilderness, they are now following God's lead day by day by day. But can you imagine the peace that they feel knowing the way God has already moved and the, the, the power he has shown in being able to even soften the hearts of a hospital? Yeah. You know? I love that. And so, you know what I want to do before? I would be remiss to let you go down without praying for you. So would you extend a hand? And Father, I thank you so much for bringing our brother into this community. And I thank you even for the ways that you used the circumstances. The fact that if he had had his heart attack in Hawaii, being about a half an hour from the hospital, he probably would have died before he ever got there. And yet you had him here. You preserved his life. And then you took something that seemed so overwhelming and you said, it's not that big a deal. I got this. You must near, you merely need to be still and watch me fight for you. And God, there's still a whole bunch of questions. I pray for your protection over his heart. I ask that you who number our days would use your son and your daughter, glorify yourself through them. I ask that you would guide their steps that you would provide every need of theirs, not merely where they sleep, how they eat, what he does for work and all that kind of stuff, but that you would use them as ministers. They have been blessed in order to be a blessing. Would you guide their steps and glorify yourself through your son and daughter? pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Thank you. Thanks, Eric. Thank you.
So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have the worship team, and we are running late. Sorry, that's what happens when you try to tackle 50 chapters of Scripture in one morning. But um, I imagine there are some of us here right now who are kind of going, I'm facing my own pharaohs. I've got things that seem overwhelming, and I don't know how to get past them. And then there are others of us right now that life is pretty placid, but it could change. And the encouragement to us this morning is to remember that we serve a God who is far larger than any obstacle we will ever encounter. Our God is bigger than any problem we will ever face. And the beautiful thing that Jesus said, I keep going back to this, in John chapter 16, in this world, we're going to have trouble. We live in a broken, fallen world. We're going to make choices that are going to hurt us and hurt our family. Others are going to make choices. Sickness is going to take place. In this world, we're going to have trouble, but we can take heart in the fact that because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, he has overcome the brokenness of this world. And heart attacks don't get the last word. Depression doesn't get the last word. Broken relationships don't get the last word. Loneliness. Anxiety. Addiction. Don't get the last word. Even death doesn't get the last word. That is the hope we have. Because we serve a God who is bigger than the brokenness of this fallen world. And this morning, I simply, as we we just take a couple of minutes, we're going to have an offering here in just a few minutes. Maybe there's a prayer request you want us to join in with you. And on your connection card, write that in there and drop it in the offering buckets as they go by. Remember, even our offering is just a declaration to God saying, I trust you even more than my bank account. My hope and my faith is in you, not in my stuff. And so during this time, this song, I encourage you to just simply sit with God and go, how have you been faithful to me? Help me to remember the ways. Because my guess is they're myriad. And it's so easy to go through life fixating on our prayer requests. And then the moment they're answered, we forget about them. And we never think about them again. And we get fixated on the next need. And the next obstacle. And the next problem. God has already shown himself time and again to be faithful. We just need to remember that so that we don't end up in the same situation as the Israelites going, God, where are you? Why are you doing this to me? And at the end of the day, my prayer is that he would be able to help himself to our lives. That his will would be done for his name's sake, not for our own. You bow your heads with me. Father, would you help us to see our lives in light of your life, in light of your love. We are your kids. We entrust ourselves to you. You know our needs. You know our fears. You know our brokenness. And you love us in spite of all of those things. And you use us in in spite of all of those things. So our lives are yours. Help yourself to them. Glorify yourself through us, even if that means discomfort. Advance your kingdom into our neighborhoods, into our families, into our workplaces, even if that means that we need to walk through valleys and wildernesses, even if we need to walk between the waters, fearing that the next step will bring the walls crashing down around us. You are God and we are not. And we entrust our lives to you and say, glorify yourself in us, Jesus, for your name's sake and not our own. Amen. Invite the ushers to come forward. And let's just take some.